not stop happening over the next 30 days, will it? By the time we get to January, 38, 39 might be even a little tiny smidge clearer than it is today. Uh, but, uh, you know, prophecy is best understood one step closer uh, to its fulfillment. Uh, tonight, though, we're going to pick up with uh, the last half of chapter 37. So uh, raise your hand if you need a Bible. We'll be glad to put one in your hands. Uh, make sure we get a Bible in anyone's hands that wants one. In uh, Ezekiel chapter 37 is where we're going to be reading from. And uh, we finished the fir- first 14 verses last, uh, last time we were together. The first 14 verses, as you recall, were the dry bones. Ezekiel sees this vision of a valley of dry bones and and the Lord asked him, can these dry bones live? And you're like, Lord, uh, you know. And, uh, and uh, God then breathes life into these bones. And, and we know that the Scripture tells us uh, explicitly uh, in chapter, uh, chapter 37, verse 11, it says, and this just quick re- review, then he said to me, Son of man, these are the bones of the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. This was exactly the cry of concentration camps. This was exactly the cry of, of millions uh, of Jews that uh, were, uh, were persecuted uh, during the Nazi Holocaust. Uh, but this was the cry of the Jewish state, if you will, because there wasn't an official Jewish state, but I mean it's the collection of the Jewish communities around the world. Uh, they had no nation. We'll look a little bit more of that uh, in our study tonight. But he sees these dry bones come back to life. And uh, we know that miraculously took place in 1948. But that's half the chapter. The other half looks even more forward uh, in things that are yet to come. So let's pick it up. And many things that are still yet to come in the first 14 verses too. The, the full uh, rejuvenation and the full revival of the nation of Israel hasn't taken place, but the bones are living. They are standing. Remember we talked that, that they kind of came together piece by piece. There was a process, uh, and we see the process is still being played out. So let's pick it up with verse 15, verses 15 through 28. And again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, as, you, as for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it, for Judah and the children of Israel, his companions. And take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel and his companions. Then join them one to another for for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. And when the children of uh, your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel and his companions, and I will join with it with the sticks of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. The sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, and will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be their king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, uh, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling place in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. 
David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes to do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. They shall dwell there, they, their children, their children's children, forever. My servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Let's pray again. Lord, we just thank you uh, for this time that you've given us this evening to open your word. Lord, we, uh, we, we so appreciate uh, that you've uh, saved us and you've given us your Holy Spirit to understand these things. I think of the Ethiopian eunuch, and uh, as he was reading, he didn't know what they meant. But Lord, now that we've been given your spirit, we know what the word of God means. And Lord, although we don't know what all the prophetic pieces mean, we, we can see the end uh, is very clear. We can see that you will rule and reign. And we just pray uh, as we uh, read these passages tonight, as we study them, that you would just encourage us and you would strengthen us, especially in these days in which we live. You said as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And we see that uh, right now in our lifetime. And Lord, we pray that you'd deliver us from fear, you'd strengthen us, you'd encourage us, and Lord, that we would have your witness on our lips, for people are beginning to seek what do all these things mean. And Lord, even in this Christmas season, we would have a reason to explain why you came to the earth when you did over 2,000 years ago. Lord, just bless this Bible study, and we ask it in your name. Amen. Well, I wanted to start off by just giving you a little bit of a, a, a timeline of Israel. And uh, so we've got our uh, clicker set back up. I just want to give you one a little bit of an overview. We, we did a little review on the first 14 verses. Uh, but Israel, it talks about that uh, the, the two kingdoms would never be divided again. Uh, there was a time when Israel was one kingdom. And there was the glorious age we've talked about before with David and Solomon. It was the greatest expanse of the kingdom. There was only one kingdom. There weren't the ten tribes in the north. There wasn't the two tribes in the south. You didn't have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It wasn't a civil war between the very house of Israel. You actually had just one kingdom under David, uh, actually under Saul as well, but under Saul, David, and Solomon. Then, uh, now it, this was kind of interesting, too. Um, I was reading an article uh, about uh, Saeed Farouk out there in California, and his uncle did an interview recently. I believe it was with an Italian, um, an Italian newspaper. I don't know if anyone saw this, but his uncle had some real interesting things to say. His uncle said, and I'm just paraphrasing what he said, but his, essentially his uncle said, don't be worried about Israel. They won't even be a country in a couple of years. I've got some news for Mr. Saeed Farouk's uncle. He hasn't read chapter 37, has he? Uh, because God said that once he kind of puts the sticks together again, they would never be ripped apart again. They would be one nation perpetually after that. And so uh, many things will happen to Israel, and probably in our lifetime, and some of them, many of them will not be good. They're, they're dealing with the knife-wielding attacks right now, there's many things that uh, Israel is dealing with 
uh, and, and worse things will still come. But as far as them being unified, once God unifies them, they won't be torn uh, apart, at least as a nation, uh, even though they have uh, much travail ahead. But most of what we'll be looking at tonight is some of the glory uh, that is ahead. But again, if you want to just kind of understand a little bit about uh, the history of Israel, um, I can't stand in front of one of these. Uh, it's both of these, so I'm going to have to pick one. So uh, I'll give you guys this time. This time. But as best I can, uh, you have the, the, the call of Abraham way back, you know, more for us now. This is well over uh, 4,000 years ago. So you have 2060 BC or in that range. So well over 4,000 years ago, uh, God. Uh, calls Israel to be a nation, uh, make your descendants of the stars of the heavens. Uh, and then you have the Exodus, and when they finally, you know, roughly 430-some uh, years later, uh, they finally are delivered out of Egypt and Pharaoh. Uh, then you have the Exodus. Remember, you've got a 40-year gap here. Then you have the Exodus. Then you have the period of the judges here. So, you know, you've got a few hundred years uh, under the judges. Uh, then you have Saul, and actually Saul has 40 years. David has seven years in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem, which is 40. So you have 40, 40, and 40. The three, uh, the primary period of the kings as a unified state was Saul, David, and Solomon. So three 40-year periods, uh, you get you know, roughly that 120 years. And then at the end, uh, the kingdom divides. And so you have the northern kingdom with 10 tribes above, Benjamin and Judah in the southern kingdom. And they become two separate nations sometimes uh, at odds in war with each other, many times in perpetual peace with each other, sometimes uh, working together. But eventually the ten tribes in 721 B.C., Assyria defeats the northern kingdom, and those ten tribes are dispersed all over the world. To this day, most no one really knows where those ten tribes are. You know, who's from Manassas? Who's from Ephraim? You know, uh, who is from Gad? All of these different tribes... Uh, people that are Jewish around the world may be from some of those tribes and wouldn't know it because uh, there's really been no uh, record keeping as far as, and that's why they're often referred to as the 10 lost tribes. Guess what? They're not lost because God knows where they're at. Isn't that good to know? They're not lost in the sense that God doesn't know where they're at. He knows exactly where they're at. And eventually he's going to gather all the 12 tribes together and somehow by the time you get the book of Revelation, when the 144,000 are sealed, he knows exactly 12,000 from every tribe, and they know which tribe they're from by then. So we're actually living in a time period where DNA and all that stuff is becoming... Now, would you ever think around Christmas time, you would see as a Christmas gift, uh, uh, get your family the gift everyone wants. Find your DNA percentages. So you know, see these little wheels, like we're X amount Scandinavian, we're X amount of Native American, we're X amount African, all these different things. And so uh, I don't know if, if you guys seen there's TV commercials about this now. People are fascinated by this. Now, this is the, you could get as a stocking stuffer this year. You could find out that you have no Greek in you after all. You've been told all these years, you know, you thought you were from a Greek family or something. You're not. You're Italian or whatever it may be. But, um, you know, we live in a lifetime that these kind of things, some of these things may be, or it may all be supernatural, that God reveals to the 12 tribes where they came from supernaturally. But the 10 tribes... Uh, were completely assimilated into the nations, but not assimilated in the sense that uh, there was no keeping of the Jewish culture. Many of the, uh, the ten tribes, I believe, are evident uh, that they, they, they still kept community, but as far as 
the tribal ancestry, that might have been lost, but at least the, the community of being Jewish still remained in some of these places, and many of them actually. But the majority of Jewish people, and where you get the word Jew comes back to the word Judah, the tribe of Judah. So you've got Judah and Benjamin. Then later in 586 B.C., when Babylon defeats the southern kingdom, destroys Jerusalem, which we've seen in our study in Ezekiel, then all those Jewish uh, that were uh, from the Judah, uh, tribe of Judah and Benjamin, those that are taken in captivity, go to Babylon, and they're the ones that come back 70 years later and will start to rebuild the wall and rebuild the ruins. But predominantly, most people that would be in that area forever forward predominantly would be from Judah and Benjamin. Even the Apostle Paul talks about uh, that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. So you actually see uh, Judah and Benjamin prominent. That, that is uh, two tribes that are traced. And then we have the Kohanim, uh, Levite tribes as well. Uh, they now have a DNA test uh, that uh, you can actually find out if you have Kohen or Kohanim in you from the tribe of Levi. But all these other tribes, again, exactly where they're at, we don't know. But uh, nevertheless, all of that to say that this is the only period that you have the United Kingdom under kind of a royal rule uh, of kings. So uh, you can go ahead and uh, take that off the screen. Uh, the writer, so uh, Ezekiel here, uh, he's told to take these two sticks, one representing the southern kingdom, one representing the northern kingdom, hold them together, and God said they'll become one in your hand. And of course, Ephraim was one of the ten tribes. It was the major tribe of the northern kingdom. So in our uh, country, California would be the biggest state as far as population-wise, most electoral votes and stuff. Yeah, some would say... Uh, California is the major state. Texans would take offense to that. They would think that they, you know, everything's bigger in Texas. Uh, everything's bigger in Texas. I'll never forget one time. I was. This is kind of funny. I was on the. I was on an airplane. We were sitting on the tarmac, and uh, um, this guy uh, was really complaining about how. True story. Complaining about how long Dallas Fort Worth International Airport is. You ever been to Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport? So it's just you got to get on this little tram thing to get from one terminal to another. And and guy was complaining about it on the plane. And finally, this Texas this Texan with a big old cowboy hat said, uh, "You complaining about the size of our airport?" And guy goes, "Yeah." He goes, "We like it that way. We like everything bigger here." <laughs> so, so again, Texans might take offense uh, in our own country, but the Northern Kingdom, Ephraim was the was the predominant tribe. The Southern Kingdom. Judah was the predominant tribe. Now, when Israel be, uh, before Israel became a nation, uh, Dr. Shyam Wiseman, and he would become the first president of Israel, uh, he had worked for many years, uh, all the way back to the early 1900s. He had worked for many years, uh, done meetings with Syria and the king of Syria and other things uh, over the years to establish a revived uh, Jewish state, which people thought was a pipe dream. They thought, you know, you can keep trying, but it'll never happen. And that was thought, you know, that would never happen as early as the 19, early 1900s. Uh, but he had said prior to Israel becoming a nation in 1948, listen to what he said. He said, the Jewish nation is a ghost nation. Only the God of Israel has kept the Jewish people alive. Now, he said this before it became a nation. Then later, David Ben-Gurion, if you fly into Israel today, you fly into Ben-Gurion International Airport there, named after him. And he would become the first prime minister uh, of Israel as well as the first minister of defense. And he said, uh, and Ezekiel, he said this about Ezekiel 37. 
the very chapter we're reading, he said this about 37. He said, Ezekiel 37 has been fulfilled, and the nation of Israel is hearing the footsteps of Messiah. The very first prime minister of Israel said, Israel is hearing the footsteps of the Messiah. He said that way back just when it had become a nation. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu stood, I can't remember which of the concentration camps he was standing in front of just a few years ago, and he said, Israel's uh, Ezekiel 37 has been fulfilled in our lifetime, referencing what uh, David Ben-Gurion had already said. And uh, both these men are partially right, as Ezekiel 37 has been partially fulfilled, as the dry bones most certainly have been taken out of the nations, has become a nation. So there's a partial fulfillment. We actually have a body that's alive, but we don't have uh, we don't have the Spirit of God flowing through it. There's not yet the turning to the Lord, but the nation has been brought back uh, and is alive as in just like you know you and I are physically alive, but we're spiritually alive when the Spirit of God is been placed in our hearts with salvation. So Israel still has another renewal part that needs to take place that hasn't taken place. Uh, but this dead nation has become a nation miraculously uh, in the lifetime of even some of you, perhaps, uh, that were born in that time period. I, I was born in 69, but we have people that attend this church that were born before 1948. So in the lifetime of some of the folks that call this church their home. Now, uh, the vast majority of uh, Jewish people, um, both in Israel and the rest of the world, they don't worship Messiah as Messiah. They're still waiting for Jesus to come what? The first time. He's already come the first time. That when David Ben-Gurion said they're the footsteps of Messiah, they're still thinking about the first time, but Jesus already came the first time. So they don't worship Jesus or Yeshua as their Messiah and King. This chapter 37 says there'll be a time when everyone will. The reunification of Israel has partly been fulfilled uh, but there is, in, 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 the, in the sense that there's one sovereign nation uh, that's now presiding over what used to be, uh, going back to the days of the divided kingdom, you had two uh, separate nations, northern kingdom. And that's why God says, I'm going to bring it back together. Once I bring it back together, it won't be torn asunder. Now, bringing Israel back into the land uh, also saw a miracle that, that maybe you haven't thought much about or maybe you haven't heard much about. Uh, but another miracle took place uh, with Israel becoming uh, a nation, being restored as the Jewish state, and that was returning to the Hebrew language. All that's taken place in just the last, yes, uh, less than last, uh, less than seventy years. Um, prior to Israel's reestablishment in 1948, the spoken language for most Jews uh, that had not assimilated into the languages of the countries that they lived in, uh, they we're speaking Yiddish. You heard that term? Most uh, predominantly in Europe, if anyone was Jewish and they didn't assimilate to the fact that they were no longer kind of with the Jewish community, and they were just speaking English or German or uh, Italian or whatever it may be, uh, but the predominant language in the Jewish community was Yiddish. And down through the centuries, uh, the biblical Hebrew was still kept and understood for scriptural text and prayers. So biblical Hebrew is still kept for scriptural uh, text and prayers all during that time. Now, as you know, if you hold up your Bible, the vast majority of your Bible uh, is in the 
Old Testament or the Tanakh. So if you hold your Bible, you would have this much in my Bible, right? You see almost uh, three times as much is in the Tanakh. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of Hebrew words that were preserved. And a lot, if you read, the Old, there's a lot, of, a lot that can be preserved by just having that much of the language. And then the prayers were still preserved as well. Uh, but over time, I mean, they thought uh, for a couple of reasons that, that Hebrew was too holy to have as a spoken language, so Yiddish developed over time and as a completely different language. And um, uh, particular, uh, particularly among the Ashkenazi Jews uh, that were in Europe. Uh, even today, some Hasidic Jews, and if you hear, hear the term Hasidic, Hasidic is an offshoot of the Orthodox Jewish community. So you have the Orthodox, you know, they wear the black hats and the, and the all black. But in the Orthodox community, there are sects within the Orthodox community. Uh, my good friend, uh, Brother Sam, will tell you, if you have two Jewish people standing there, you have three opinions uh, because there's a lot of dissension within the Jewish community, even in the religious sect Orthodox, they don't all believe the same, and you have the uh, liberal wing, you've got the conservatives, you've got all these different, uh, uh, different pieces of the, um, of the Hebrew pie. Uh, but uh, as far as uh, Yiddish, it's still spoken in a few places even today, uh, primarily uh, in parts of New York City and parts of Israel among that Hasidic Jewish community. Yiddish, uh, I mean Yiddish, uh, when you combine Hasidic and Yiddish, you get Yiddish, but uh, that's not a word. Uh, Yiddish is, the, is uh, a Germanic, it's in the Germanic family of languages. So it's a combination of several languages fused together, including Hebrew, German, Slavic, uh, Aramaic, and various other languages. And that is what comprised the Yiddish language that had been preserved all the way through World War II. That was the common, uh, common Jewish language. But in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, and you might want to write this verse down because it's a, it's, a, it's a real cool thing for the time we live in in our lifetime. In Zephaniah 3, 9, listen to what it says. It says, For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language. Do you realize that God had foretold that the language would drift away and he'd restore it back? So it wasn't just a restoring of the people. He would have to restore the language. Now, you can't have a language restored unless it went away. So a little, an, an often overlooked verse that maybe you never thought of before is that God had already foretold that the language would have to be restored. I will restore to the people a pure language. It had to be lost first before it could be restored. Reunified as a nation and as a language. And remember, in our nation, we're not only a nation, but we have an official language of English. Most nations have not only their sovereign state, but they also have an official language. And uh, for, for Jews coming out of the Nazi Holocaust, Yiddish was considered just a heartbreaking language to still have. So God used that to actually turn their attention to reviving the ancient Hebrew language. Nobody wanted Yiddish to be the national language because it was a language of such sorrow during the Nazi Holocaust. So uh, Hebrew was chosen, say, let's go back, let's figure out everything from the ancient Hebrew language we can. And it's a daunting task to resurrect a language that nobody speaks. Sans a few of the rabbis that have kept up and have at least taught the prayers and some of the text, but to revive the language um, was a big deal. 
Hebrew was, um, was the spoken language of David and Solomon in the United Kingdom. So to bring it back makes all the sense in the text as well, that there would be the unification of the nation and the language, and to go back to the time when the nation was one nation and had that same Hebrew language. Hebrew then and today is in the Semitic family of languages. The modern Hebrew today, and you'll sometimes refer to, you'll hear it referred to as modern Hebrew. Uh, the modern Hebrew today is based on biblical Hebrew. Uh, reviving the Hebrew language was led by a, a gentleman by the name of Eliezer Ben Yehuda. And so if you go to Israel, we were there, uh, ben, uh, ben Yehuda Street is a very popular uh, street right there in downtown Jerusalem. And uh, in the late 19th century and early 19th century, he began to do the work on this. Uh, Well-known uh, throughout Israel, he started with a base of about 8,000 words, 8,000 Hebrew words that, that were codified, already uh, used in the Old Testament and in the prayers, about 8,000 words. And then another 20,000 Hebrew words that he got from ancient rabbinical writings. So you take the 8,000 uh, there, another 20,000 from the ancient rabbinical writings, and he begins the daunting task of taking and piecing the entire language together. And when you piece a language together that's been dormant for quite a long time, you also have many terms, the word computer wouldn't be in there, right? Automobile, things like that. So you have, they came up with new Hebrew words for concepts that just didn't exist then. Uh, but then they would be bridged together uh, with the ancient Hebrew language. Hence, you have the uh, terminology, the modern Hebrew language. Israel has now been a sovereign nation for 67 years. Uh, but all the Jews in the world are definitely not living in Israel. Everyone understands that, right? Even though it's a sovereign nation, all the Jewish people on, uh, in the world are not living in Israel as one united kingdom uh, that 30, chapter 37 tells us is coming. Uh, where they are and which tribes they're from, again, many uh, wouldn't have a clue what tribe they are, what, Jew, what Jewish tribe uh, that they would be representing. Uh, how God will someday reveal that again uh, is a mystery. But let's take a look at the next. If you're taking notes, uh, we just looked at the coming reunification. I want to take a look now at the coming regathering, and we're seeing some of that uh, now. Uh, many people have gone back to Israel uh, to live. Uh, in Isaiah eleven eleven, it says, listen to this verse, it says, In that day the Lord will reach out His hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of His people from Assyria, uh, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, which is down in Africa, from Elam, from Babylonia, which is over in Iraq, uh, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. Uh, there's even Jewish people who live in Oceania, which is you know the Pacific Oceans, over to New Zealand and Australia, all that area. So even the Bible says uh, that that God would be bringing uh, the Jewish nation together from around the world, even the islands of the sea. The regathering um, is still taking place, uh, but a time is coming when the Lord will gather all the Jews from all the nations of the earth. The Hebrew term used to describe this migration, and you may hear it sometimes even on the news, is aliyah, right? Uh, people say, we're, we're going to exercise aliyah. Uh, the Israel gives, if you, if you are Jewish, you have the uh, right and opportunity to actually immigrate to Israel and become a citizen of that uh, nation, and people are doing that. 
the Hebrew meaning is ascent. Uh, this speaks of going up. And the phrase is frequently used in the Bible uh, of going up to Jerusalem. The Psalms of Ascent or the Songs of Ascent uh, in the book of Psalms speak of when they would actually go up. Uh, and of course, uh, the city sits atop Mount Zion there, and you go up to Jerusalem, sits around 2,500 feet above sea level. Since 1948, more than 3 million Jews from 90 countries have returned to the land of their forefathers. Since 1948, 3 million from 90 countries. Uh, the JewishAgency.org, uh, and this is based on a research uh, done in 2013 by a professor by the name of Professor Sergio de la Pergola. Uh, he estimates a global Jew po- Jewish population as of 2013 of 17. million Jews worldwide. As of 2013, 17.936 million Jewish people worldwide. Other global estimates range between 14 million and 20 million. So no one has less than 14, no one higher than 20. Uh, His exhaustive study came up with 17.93. But assuming the 17.93 number is fairly accurate, there are still many Jewish candidates to be drawn back to the homeland. Many more Jewish people that still could go home uh, to the land that God had given to Abraham. According to, the Jewish, uh, Jer- according to the Jerusalem Post, uh, Israel today has 8.3 million people as its total population. Now that's, you know, we've got American cities that have more than 8, 8.3 million, uh, but that is the total population of Israel today, of which 6.2 million are Jewish or just under 75% of all Israelis are Jewish. 6.2 million of the 8.3 in Israel are Jewish. Uh, The others, again, Arabic and other different nationalities. Uh, So as uh, as of today, that means that about 34% of the Jewish population actually lives in Israel. Does that surprise you? Only about 34% of the actual Jewish population worldwide lives in Israel. We have uh, a f- several people, even some of you in this room are Jewish here tonight, and you don't live in Israel, and again, another 66% uh, don't live in Israel. So about 34% of the Jewish population lives there. Um, many more could return, and many more probably will return. As you study biblical prophecy, certain questions arise uh, all throughout uh, biblical prophecy, Lord, what do, what do all these things mean? When will they happen? Uh, one, a couple of questions that arise, at least in my mind, is will all the Jewish people go home? Will they all go back? Or will just some? And if they all go back, when will they all go back? Because that's still a lot of people that haven't gone back to Israel in our lifetime right now. Wouldn't you agree? Now, there's other things that could play into that. Uh, when, uh, when the tribulation period comes, there'll be so much death on earth that we, you wouldn't need as many to return because it, uh, uh, the things that are going to happen uh, on planet earth are going to affect all ethnicities, uh, certainly uh, Jewish as well. But I believe um, definitively God knows when, how many, and if all will go back. And when they do go back, God is the one that ultimately knows how this is going to work. But I do believe the scriptures point to the thousand-year period after the tribulation known as the millennium reign of Christ. And so 
if you study biblical prophecy, and there are different schools of thought on the end times eschatology or the study of end times. I personally believe, as all Calvary Chapel Pat, we believe in the rapture of the church. We believe that there will be a rapture of the body of Christ, and that after that rapture of the body of Christ, there comes a seven-year, the, the, wor- the worst seven years in all of world history. Great uh, trouble, great, great trouble of uh, all kinds of catastrophic uh, things that will take place, the rise of the Antichrist, uh, the persecution. As a matter of fact, the Antichrist will eventually set up his throne in Jerusalem, but it will be short-lived. Uh, you know, the Lord will defeat and uh, throw the Antichrist into the lake of fire at the end of those seven years. But at the end of the seven years, and you have the Battle of Armageddon where God draws all the nations of the world to Israel. Then comes the thousand-year glorious millennium reign of Christ. And... Uh, that thousand-year reign will be ruled by Jesus Christ himself. Now, Israel, as you, if you saw my slide up there, I didn't reference it, but I'll reference it now. Israel never had a thousand-year period where it was all under the glorious one united kingdom. They only lasted 120 years at that. They made a run at it, and they got to 120 years. And then they divorced each other. Right? People still try and make a run at things and divorce each other, right? So, you know, it, it, it had a 120 years, and so that's it. Now, before that, they, they were under the, uh, you know, from the time they came into the promised land, around 500 years, they still were unified, but that was under the judges and different. It wasn't like the royal rule of a king. And so they still are awaiting a time where they would actually have a glorious rule and reign a king and peace and no armies surrounding them and uh, none of the issues that they had run. And they, even when they were under the judges, they constantly were dealing with the Edomites, the Philistines, and all these different things. So this thousand-year reign uh, is key uh, to what God could be saying about all of Israel. Look at verse, uh, look at verse uh, 21. It says, thus says the Lord, uh, or say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. Now that could be a percent. What God says is anywhere that there has ever been Jewish people or is Jewish people at that time, I'm going to bring them out of that place. Now you could say, well, that could be a subset of every place, or God could be saying, Everyone. Now, Paul has something interesting to say in Romans. Paul says, all Israel will be saved. I got to thinking a lot about that this week, because I've thought a lot about that statement before, and I don't know exactly, no one can definitively say what Paul meant by that, but here's my, here's my take about one thing that is possible that Paul may have been speaking of. It's very possible that the one Israel, when he says all of Israel will be saved, it's very possible that all of Israel in the millennium would be saved. At the end of the millennium reign of Christ, what happens to Satan? Well, he's bound for a thousand, he's bound for the entire thousand years of the millennium reign of Christ. Book of Revelation tells us that. At the end of the thousand years, he's released for a short season to deceive the nations one more time. And where do all the nations head? Right back to Jerusalem to surround the city. And it very well may be that in the millennium, Gentiles, 
may reject Christ, but it may be that during the millennium when Paul says all Israel will be saved, it may be. I'm not telling you that. Again, there's many different thoughts on this. I'm just saying from my perspective as I look at it, it's possible that Paul was referring to when all Israel will be saved in the millennium, the Jewish state will stay true to the Lord. So let's take a look at uh, what God, uh, he, there's a lot to say about this even in this text here. Um, so he goes on to say, uh, I'll make in verse 21, uh, look at verse 22, and I'll make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be their king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they be divided into two kings again. Look at verse 23. They shall not defile themselves anymore with idols, nor with detestable things. So idolatry is gone, completely gone, nor with the transgression, uh, nor with any of their transgressions. I will deliver them from all their dwelling place in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them. What happened when you and I got saved? We were cleansed. This is something different taking place here. This is a heart of uh, stone pulled out and the heart of flesh that Ezekiel had already written about. Uh, God says he's going to give them a heart of flesh in previous chapters. And then he goes on to say, and they shall be my people and, they, and I will be their God. Now think in the, trib, in, the, in the millennium reign of Christ, if all the Jewish people have now, those that were alive in the millennium have been brought into personal relationship with the Lord, devotion to Christ, that the other nations come up against them, they would be protected by the Lord at that time. Now, but a revival is what's needed. If you're taking notes, uh, you can jot down, coming revival is my next point here. Uh, there is a revival coming. Israel today is full of many people that are agnostic, atheist, you know, all kinds of Kabbalah, various sects of Orthodox Judaism, various sects of Judaism, period, uh, and very few, percentage-wise, born again, believing in Jesus Christ, what we would call Messianic Jews, and some of you that are saved here, they're Jewish, are Messianic Jews. Uh, but most of the Jewish community around the world still has not put their faith and trust in Yeshua, so revival is still needed. Uh, there's still a resistance, a stiff neck towards the Word of God. Charles Finney said, A revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. A revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. And, and Jesus came and gave the truth, but most didn't obey the truth. And even to this day, the majority, now, to be uh, perfectly clear, the majority of Gentiles have also rejected Jesus. Let's say the majority of the world, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, the majority of Jewish and the majority of Gentiles, that's why both Jew and Gentile, we talked about Sunday, they both put Jesus on the cross. I am Gentile, and we put him on the cross, and those that are Jewish, they put him on the cross. So there's really no distinction. But the point is, for the Jewish state, this one kingdom, a revival must take place, and the Lord will do that work. And now is the purification, the bringing them to that place, the one-third that will come up out of Basra following Jesus back into Jerusalem at the end of the tribulation, is all that born in the tribulation period? Uh, or, as again, in the, in the millennium, and there are time where uh, those that are born into Jewish homes, uh, one by one, come to know the Lord, God knows. Now, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, uh, 23 verse 39, How I long to gather you, but you are not willing. You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Or in Hebrew, Baruch Habab, Bashem Adonai. You'll not see me until 
you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus saying there that uh, there'll be a time when those who are rejecting him will actually believe in him. Now, you can't obey Jesus until you first believe in him. We talked about this in a recent study. You have to believe in him first. And those of you that said, yes, I believe the gospel is true, then you put your faith and trust in him. So Israel, as a nation, will have to come to the place that they believe in God. Remember in the tribulation I've already mentioned, God's going to send out 144,000 virgin Jewish evangelists, what I like to call 140,000 Apostle Pauls. Can you imagine? Talk about setting the world on fire. Uh, 144,000 preaching the gospel, and, and they'll be preaching to Gentiles too. Many Gentiles will come to know the Lord, but no question, uh, many in the household of Israel will come to know the Lord. And what the, uh, what the Lord is saying here is in this coming single state, God will do a great work that all of them, at the end of verse 23, they shall be my people and I will be their God. There'll be no more separation. There'll be no more doubting that Jesus isn't their king. The nail-pierced hands, the nail-pierced feet, he'll be sitting on that throne there in Jerusalem, and they'll all be worshiped. Now, we're going to, I'm not going to say a lot, because we have a lot more of this to cover in this very context in the rest of Ezekiel. So uh, that just gives you a little bit of a flavor of what's coming. Now, in Zephaniah chapter 3, I, I quoted from Zephaniah 3. Let me uh, quote verses 9 and 10. And you can jot this down again. Zephaniah verses three, uh, chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And, and it says, That they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. What is the prophet saying there in Zephaniah? From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, uh, and in the in the Hebrew vernacular, uh, Ethiopia was like the uttermost, way down because you had to go way down uh, the Nile River to get to Ethiopia. So anything beyond Ethiopia was like way out there. And what God is saying, He says, the dispersed ones—that uh, was a colloquialism beyond Ethiopia, right? So way, way. And we would say country miles or whatever it may be, colloquialism. So beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, the dispersed ones. But he says, my worshipers, and they shall bring my offering, that all those dispersed will come home and worship the Lord, this coming revival. And the idolatry will be gone. You know, Solomon was given the opportunity to build the temple. And we see that the temple is, is here as well. Uh, there'll be a new temple there, and when we get uh, later in Ezekiel, see what the new temple will look like. It's, it'll be the largest of all the temples. So we have, uh, by the way, as far as temples go, you have the temple that Solomon built, and then you have the rebuilding of the temple uh, when Ezra comes, and then you have uh, Herod the Great actually takes the second temple and then expands it dramatically. So by the time that Jesus is on uh, on the scene, the second temple, which is actually an expansion. Herod's temple would actually be 2B. It's the same one, but just he made it way larger, way grander. But the, the final temple in Ezekiel is much larger than Herod's temple, much, much larger uh, even than Herod's temple. But there may be another temple before that that's built. Well, there will be a temple in the tribulation. We just don't know if that temple is completely obliterated and built into the one Ezekiel, or that one is expanded. So again, uh, but we see that there will be a temple there, and they'll bring the offering to the temple 
uh, of this revived nation spiritually. Let's take a look uh, at our last couple of things, the coming ruler. Verse 24, David, my servant, shall be king over them. Um, a passage you know well during Christmas time. You'll probably hear this passage a number of times during the Christmas season. Uh, many of you can quote it in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Won't government be great when Jesus runs it? No more lying. No more campaigns. That'll, that alone is worth rejoicing about. No more political campaigns. The government will be upon his shoulders. It'll be great. Uh, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace... He won't need the Secret Service. He won't need Navy SEALs. He won't need the NSA. He won't need the CIA. All the other things, he won't need it. But his kingdom, his peace, there'll be no end. But then look at what it says next. And most people just kind of gloss over this, but it's important as we, in our study. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time for, for, uh, forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. Now, back to our text in Ezekiel. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my judgments to observe my statutes and to do them. Now, we don't know exactly. Um, we know that uh, David, in, in the rule of the kings, Saul, he started out well. He finished horribly, right? Saul completely abandons the Lord. He wants to kill David. The remainder of his life, he's trying to hunt David down. David uh, is called a man after God's own heart. Uh, he never gets to build the temple, but he is the one that writes the Psalms. And uh, even after he falls, he's a picture of all of us that God, even though we have fallen, God redeems us. He comes back. He finishes strong, loves the Lord. Solomon carries the nation into idolatry. He started out strong too, but then he basically carries the nation into idolatry. So David, of those three kings of the United Kingdom, David is the only one that God has this kind of reverence for throughout, that the throne of David would last forever, that God kind of honors, says, David, your throne uh, will be there. Now, Ezekiel, a, a, number, a few times in this book, and we're going to see it again uh, when we get to uh, chapters... Uh, you see it in chapter 44 uh, as well. We'll look at it there. But uh, there is a, a school of thought here, and particularly because when you look at some of the things uh, in, chapter, in chapter 34, uh, verse, uh, verse 3, for example, I'm not going to turn there now, but uh, it very well may be, and I talked about this earlier, that David may play a special vice-regent role in the millennium reign of Christ. In other words, Jesus gives David his light work, like a vice president. And David kind of sits on a physical throne, but the presence of Jesus is over David. And, we see, and again, we, we have a picture of this in the Old Testament where Joseph is given the ring of Pharaoh, and he's the vice regent of Pharaoh. But who kind of runs Egypt? Joseph does. He pretty much runs the show. Pharaoh's like, don't bother me unless it's really important, Right? 
Well, Jesus, it, you know, it may be that. And then there's many other scholars that just think when it says that David shall be my servant, that it's simply Jesus uh, basically sitting over the Davidic line, and it, and it is none other than Jesus himself, and it's, sometimes it calls Jesus prince, and sometimes it calls Jesus king. Um, we'll, we'll find out in the millennium reign of Christ, folks. We won't know until we get there. David could very well play a vice-regent role, uh, or it may be just Jesus alone and David. Uh, but I, I, again, there is some, there is some evidence that uh, there, are, there are special roles. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus says to the disciples, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, in that, gen- in that regeneration, speaking of the millennium reign of Christ, uh, when he's revived the earth, when Israel's been regenerated, in that regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on his throne in glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They had no idea that the tribes wouldn't even know who they are in our lifetime. Or if I'm, if I'm from Ephraim, I'm from Manassas, where am I from? The 12 tribes have come back together, and there may be uh, a special role for David because we see Jesus said there will be a special role for the 12 apostles. They'll sit on 12 tribes judging the 12, uh, 12, uh, 12, 12 thrones, sitting on, uh, judging the 12 tribes. Uh, he says that in Luke twenty two thirty that you may eat and drink at my table and in my kingdom. He speaks of his kingdom, this, that thousand-year reign to come, and his uh, on, th- on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now understand that uh, Jesus, uh, even though he will someday rule and reign over Israel, and for that matter the whole world, Jesus is already king of kings even if he's not sitting physically in Jerusalem today. Amen? He's already the king of kings. It says when he ascended into heaven, he made earth his footstool. So a throne in Jerusalem is not really a big deal comparative to his size. He's made earth his footstool. He's already been glorified. He's already been uh, ruling over all of creation. God has given all things to him. He owns the keys to death and life, heaven, hell. He's the Alpha and Omega. The thing is that right now, everyone on planet Earth is living in denial. They're in total denial that Jesus is King of Kings. And those that are Jewish, that their Messiah has already come, they're in denial. But eventually, God's going to reveal it to everyone. And that's what's coming here in this chapter. C.S. Lewis said, A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. Right? You can deny that Jesus, I don't think he's really the king over us. Well, he is. And someday he'll make it clear, and those that love him will actually be there to worship him. But not only in worship, but, but enjoy that rest. Jesus said, come unto me and I'll give you what? Rest. Now, he wants to give us rest by the Holy Spirit now, but ultimately he wants to give us a permanent rest. And let's close with this last, if you're taking notes, coming rest. There's a coming rest here. Verse 25, they shall dwell in the land that I've given to Jacob, my servant. Now, Jacob was the name of Israel before God changed Jacob's name to Israel. So you have Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or you could say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But his name was Jacob, which meant deceiver, and God changed his name to Israel. And uh, so he says, the land that I've given to Jacob, sometimes when the word Jacob's used, it again, it kind of just shows God's mercy, because Jacob didn't deserve mercy, his name being deceiver, but God is just showing that it's of grace. The salvation of Israel, the salvation of those in Israel, 
it's an act of grace. And I'll make a covenant of peace with them. Uh, let me go back to verse 25. Where your fathers dwelt, they shall dwell there. They Now those of you that have kids or those of you that are already grandparents, you've got to love a verse like this. Where your fathers dwelt, they shall dwell there. Their children, their children's children, forever. You know, talk about family reunions. Now, sometimes you really want family reunions to end. I know that. But someday you'll not want the family reunion to end. Your children, your children's children, and their children forever. They'll finally rest in the land. No worries about anything. If you look in Isaiah 11, uh, if you haven't read in Isaiah 11 in a while, let me read it to you. This is uh, beautiful. Isaiah chapter 11, uh, it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of the roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rust upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is about Jesus himself. So all that describes the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God rest upon Jesus. We see the seven spirits of God um, also in the book of Revelation. Uh, His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's at the end of the tribulation. And with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. All that's right at the end of the tribulation. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. So here he is ruling and reigning, standing on the earth. The wolf also, and this is what happens in the millennium reign of Christ, everything rests. The land rests, the people rest, everything. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, the fatling together, a little child shall lead them. It's you know, really true that in the millennium reign of Christ, kids can have a lion as a pet. It'll be great. Uh, and uh, the cow and the bear shall graze. The cows and bears don't usually hang out that well together. But uh, uh, Well, the bear seems to do fine, but the cow doesn't seem to do as, as well. But uh, uh, their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play upon the cobra's hole. I think snakes scare everyone more than anything else in there. Just sticking your hand down there and, uh, hey, grab the cobra, play with it. Uh, but all these things will take place. Um, it says in Isaiah 65, Nor shall the infant from there live but a few days, and an old man shall not fill his age, for the child shall die at 100 years of age. Now, the millennium reign of Christ is not a perfect period in the sense that people still will die, but lifespans of humanity will return back to the pre-Noahic flood times of close to 1,000 years. Uh, and then again, if the nation state of Israel, if they are all saved, uh, we don't know whether they live the entire amount uh, will, will they, um, kind of like us, pass but be with the Lord and come right back? I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of mystery in the millennium, but there's also a lot of things that are told about it. So this would be a future wonderful time that Israel has. Uh, but I was telling my wife as I was preparing, I said, you know, when I think about it, I'll close with this. Think about this thought. If, if the things in chapter 38 and 39 happen, let's say, five years from now, Say five years from now, Russia and Iran descend upon the mountains of Israel. God smokes them like he's going to do. And all of a sudden, there's the rapture of the church in the same, somewhere in that same period. Do you realize that uh, at that point, if that was five years from now, the millennium reign would only be 12 years away? If it happened tomorrow, it'd be seven years away because they're going to actually burn the fuel, uh, use the weaponry for seven years, and you can actually 
I'm getting ahead of myself, chapter 38 and 39. But anyway, you get the idea that imagine that peace on earth, goodwill towards men, which is exactly what the angels announced when Jesus came, has yet to happen, but it's very close to happening. It could happen as soon as there's the rapture of the church, we would be seven years away, approximately seven years away from the millennium reign of Christ. So that's something to look forward to, huh? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the truth of your word. We thank you for the encouragement to know that uh, you've defeated all the forces of evil. And there's coming a day, and maybe, Lord, sooner than we even think, where you're going to rule and reign over Jerusalem, where you're going to restore the household of Israel, how you'll do it, when you'll do it, when you'll pull the tribes together, uh, will they all come in before the tribulation or after it or in the middle of it or in the millennium reign, we don't know. But we know there's coming a day when, as your servant Paul said, all of Israel will be saved. We know there's coming a day when the fulfillment of the Gentiles will have taken place. We know that there'll come a day, Lord, when you have saved the last soul and your family has been completely completed. And Lord, until that time comes, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful to tell these things, to share these things with joy in our hearts and, Lord, with peace on our lips to those that don't know you as Lord and Savior, especially in this Christmas season, Lord. We know Isaiah 9, 6. We know chapter 11 of Isaiah. Lord, I pray that you would remind us these things, even as we're interacting with people, to point them to the Messiah. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, bake